Hi guys, welcome to Giant Talk, the world's first OKR podcast in partnership with Koan, the dedicated OKR platform. I'm your host, Jenny, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Nicholas Lang of Boston Consulting Group. Nicholas has worked for BCG for 25 years and heads their global advantage practice and is founder and director of the Centre for Mobility Innovation. He also has a PhD in business administration, is an honorary professor at Galen University, lecturing in ecosystems and specifically digital digital ecosystems, and has co-written the book Beyond Great, Nine Strategies for Thriving in an Era of Social Tension, Economic Nationalism and Technical Revolution. So I'm delighted to have Nicholas with me today. But before we start, please, can you just give us a brief introduction to our listeners? Yes, Jenny. Well, it's great to be with you today. And well, I think you said everything I could do <laughs> my introduction, uh, but uh, I, I tend to describe a little bit my person along three dimensions. First, well, I've had I've been working for BCG since the mid late 1990s, uh, which gives me like over two decades of consulting and industry experience. And I think I've been always looking working along two dimensions here. One is, uh, and you mentioned it. I've worked a lot uh, internationally. I've worked in more than 50 BCG offices, and I'm heading our global advantage practice, which is a practice really geared towards geopolitics, trade, uh, global consumer trends, and global alliances. Um, and my second uh, uh, leg is uh, that I've spent also most of my time working for a lot of automotive and mobi- mobility clients, which actually have to handle geopolitics as well as consumer trends. So it's a nice, nice uh, kind of link between those two dimensions of my activity. Perfect. Thanks, Nicholas. So we'll dive straight in by setting the scene. So one thing that's kind of ever constant and everyone knows this is change. But in your opinion, have the events of the last kind of 12 to 18 months advanced or affected change, especially when it comes to consumer trends and global trade? Yes, I think the last 12 to 18 months have been obviously special for everyone. And I think you've just singled out two dimensions, which I find very interesting. One is global consumer trends. So we at BCG are looking at at regular consumer sentiment. Yeah, and we've been doing that really from the first weeks when the pandemic hit. And I think the two things which for me are very striking is... um, Uh, Actually, there are three things. The first thing is um, that in many cases, despite the pandemic striking, there has been a high resilience of consumer demand. So we haven't seen a kind of uh, falling off the cliff. The second thing which is interesting is that obviously massive consumer demand has moved from offline to online and to digital. And I think the third topic is that you have, of course, a huge diversity between the different commodity groups between commodity groups that are in very high demand, like health, entertainment, organic food, and things like this. And then obviously commodity groups that have been heavily hit at the beginning, like cars, they recovered very quickly. And then still, of course, groups that are still heavily hit, like uh, travel and tourism, for example. So I think that's the three things I took away. So resilience, digital, and diversity. Perfect. And I guess they're all kind of on the big scale. So the next kind of thing I wanted to come to is a lot of our Giant Talk listeners will come from big organisations, but some will come from smaller organisations. So in your opinion, are global consumer trends a one size fits all? So how important is it for smaller organisations to track global trends? Yeah. So I think, again, when we look at the analysis we have done on consumer sentiment, um, uh, there is no one size fits all. On uh-huh. the contrary, yeah, I think even global brands are trying to find local ways 
of selling their products in a local context, yeah, and uh, uh, and therefore I think uh, it's really un- it's really important to understand the local environment in which you sell a product or a service, um, and therefore I think for local players or smaller players, Jenny, as you mentioned, for me it's more important to understand really deeply the environment in which you're selling and offering products and trying to look at global trends. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the way to approach this is to ethnographic research, being really obsessed by the consumer, understanding what his or her decision patterns are um, in China differently from Singapore or differently from Dubai or differently from Boston. So I think that very close focus on regional patterns of decision, regional environment is, I think, much more important than looking at some lofty global consumer trends, which, by the way, I think don't exist. It's, it's really around the local game. Okay. Makes sense. That leads me nicely into kind of my next question, which is um, how do companies or organizations look to convert these global trends into, or, or like you say, more local trends into meaningful insights, which organizations and teams can then use to gain an advantage? Well, I think one thing when you look at at companies and at successful companies and companies that have transformed over the last few years is companies that are really obsessed by the consumer, understanding what the consumer wants, putting the consumer in the middle of their organization. And that starts by really being very close to the customer, listening to him or her, and then having the right translation into the organization by having joint market and engineering or R&D teams, uh, by really having an end-to-end process responsibility between the initial product development up to sales or even after sales. And I think this, this verticalization of the pro- consumer responsibility, which is not just somewhere in the corner of sales and marketing, but which is a responsibility along the whole value chain, I think is one of the key transformations we have seen both intellectually and organizationally in the last few years. So it's almost that personalization across every single element of the process. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I want to shift focus slightly. So, um, one of the many things, obviously, in your co-written book, Beyond Great, that is mentioned is how data needs to be converted to fuel that propels growth. And that's something we very much advocate at Derby Giants is OKRs give clarity with measurable results. So in your kind of global experience, how important is this and how do companies take steps to ensure data is providing not just numbers, but insights? Yeah, I think when we talk about data, there are, uh, I think, two dimensions to look at it. One is you can use data uh, as really insight and and steering mechanisms uh, for corporations and organizations. And I think here, what we have seen is that obviously there has been a big step change in terms of how do I display data? How do I Mm -hmm. use data on dashboards to really have a holistic perspective of of the state in which I am, yeah. Um, Let me give you a very concrete example. I was working for a client, uh, actually an automotive supplier who was hit by COVID. And he, uh, and this company was uh, kind of procuring parts from Wuhan. So the place that went first lockdown. Um, And I think this company was quite advanced because they had an end-to-end supply chain management on a dashboard. So they really had a clear perspective of which goods came from Wuhan, which goods were stuck where, what were the alternatives and things like this. But honestly said, 
this is the exception. This is not the rule. There are many companies out there who at best would have had some loading papers knowing yeah. where specific uh, goods are and would not have this kind of nice dashboards type. So this is the first topic, Jenny, as I told you, in terms of really using data for insight. And then I think there's a second one, which is really using data for business. Yeah, mm-hmm. And um, I think um, if you take the example you just mentioned, our book, uh, like John Deere, yeah, which is a farm equipment manufacturer. So you would say one of the most traditional in, uh, industries you could have. Well, they were extremely smart by taking data and adding it to their uh, different farm equipment by creating a platform by which they advise farmers uh, not only on future weather, but also on the subsequent use of fertilizers, of seeds. Uh, And so the combination of taking detailed understanding of the environment and putting uh, then the farmer uh, in a position where he or she can really apply the right products next to the hardware of farming equipment, I think is the second example of taking data as an additional business. So again, two messages, one data as an insight driver, taking the dashboards, second data as an additional business next to a hardware business. That's the example of John Deere I just mentioned. Yeah, it's really interesting, that example. Um, I'll, have to, I'll have to do a bit of research after our conversation about that one. It sounds like a good one to read about. Um, so you just have to read the book, Jenny. If you read the book, you have a very nice case study on this one. Okay, perfect. So, um, something, and I, by the way, for our listeners, I will drop the link in for the book afterwards. So you can all grab and go and take a look out there. But something that OKRs can provide organisations with is an agile framework to help them shift to have a change in environments. A number of the organisations we work with were already set up for OKRs when the pandemic hit and were able to kind of shift their focus in a cohesive, transparent and aligned way. So, But how can digital ecosystems enable organisations to thrive in an ever-changing environment? Yeah, so I think two points. When you talk about agility, I think uh, what we have seen is that companies that are really beyond great are companies that are fully embracing the logic of agile teams. yeah, And agile teams is really cross-functional yeah. teams that are breaking down the silos. And I like the example of the company ByteDance, which we all know is the mother company of TikTok, which was quite, which is quite famous. And they actually talk about liquefying their organization by taking tens of thousands of people and really putting them into an in, into an agile setup, which is very different from what we were used in, I would say, many other corporations. Now, that's the way how you make your organization within the organization boundaries more flexible. But then it comes to how do you interact as an organization with the outside world? And, you know, in the past, there were not so many options. You either bought a company, M&A, you went into a joint venture, uh, and if you were very daring, you tried something called the strategic alliance. Yeah. yeah, But that was already a challenge. And I think what we see now, especially in the last 10 years, is the emergence of what we call digital ecosystems. So what is this? This is, um, this is a network of 10, 20, 30 companies that are loosely connected together around a common cause, which in this case could be a software service, uh, or a digitized product. Yeah. So one example I like to have, which is, by the way, also described in the book, uh, Beyond Great, is the way how the automotive industry evolved. Yeah. We all know what a car is looking like. So 
10, 15 years ago, when you wanted to build a car, you had many suppliers, but at the end of the day, the GMs, the Renaults, the Toyotas, the Volkswagen of this world were putting the car together. End of story. Today, the cars are getting electric, they're getting connected, they're getting autonomous. In order to really tackle this great variety of new technologies, you will need to bring in people that know software, people that know data management, people that know cybersecurity, people that know applications and things like this. And then you are not anymore in this traditional supplier network, but you are in a what we what we call a value bet, a digital ecosystem. And I think that's the big difference we see today. Yeah, again, really interesting. I think, and like you say, we've kind of shifted from what we were before to now this and how people adapt to that and work moving forward with that process. Yeah, and um, I think really, it's really dramatic. Yeah, you know, I think there are, we have many executives, many managers that are used to do well in an A and joint venture. Mm. And suddenly when you tell them and say, well, but looking at the number of, of partners you need to deliver that product and you uh, looking at the IP that's being generated, you actually need to move towards another setup, which is an ecosystem. Well, that's not simple. Yeah. yeah. That's, a, that's one of the key challenges, I would say, for the next decade for many industries. Koan is a purpose-built solution for managing your OKRs. Helps your team achieve their objectives and key results, helps them get aligned, and it helps them stay engaged. Shared spreadsheets simply don't scale when you're using OKRs properly, and you're not going to have a maximum impact with them. But with Coan, you can scale your OKRs right across your entire company, keeping your team super motivated and moving everybody in the right Roger, direction. Roger, what's one of your favorite features about Coan? So the thing that I really love about Coan, and have done ever since uh, I first saw it, was how it really puts the conversation around OKRs at the heart of the system and it really helps stimulate that which obviously brings really good collaboration. You know they've got this uh, reflections feature which uh, helps uh, individuals really prepare for the uh, the team conversation which is going to come up where the collaboration is going to take place. So that would definitely be the thing for me which is the the killer feature of the system. So as someone who has their finger on the pulse of global consumer trends, geopolitics and the impact of kind of trade barriers, you've led me very nicely onto this question. What are your foresights for the future and what should organisations be planning for to go beyond great? Well, that's a big question. <laughs> Could be here all day talking about it. And, yeah. And, and I, um, look, I think, I think when we look forward, um, there are, I would say uh, three big forces that will shape our future going forward. I think one is, and this is what we call it, one is definitely the whole topic around uh, social tensions and climate change. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, when we wrote that book, uh, started writing this book like three, four years ago, the whole ESG agenda was by far not as pronounced as it is today. I think today there is not a single client that is not looking at that topic. And I think also consumers are making more and more choices based on the fact, is this product or is this service um, carbon neutral? Has it been produced in a, in, a, in, a, in a meaningful way? And let me give you one example from the book, which I find very interesting, which is actually a cosmetics firm called Natura and Company. Natura & Co. is, by the way, not only a Brazilian cosmetics firm, but they also know, own big brands such as Body Shop and Avon. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And what they have done already starting in the 1980s is to be really rigorously focused on ecologically developed cosmetic products. Yeah. And I think this is something which I think in terms of consumer trend beyond everything, Jenny, we discussed before, I think being knowing that the product you consume or the service you consume has been developed according to specific standards will become a single very important point in the next mm. Number one. Number two, you talk about global trade. I think economic nationalism will be, I think, also very important in the in the years to come. Yeah. What does this mean? Uh, and I don't want to get into politics, but uh, but you know, uh, it was very obvious that the former uh, administration, U.S. administration, was very tough on China, and we have uh, the U.S.-China trade war and so on. Now presidents have changed, the tone has changed, but fundamentally still us and china are um, having strong discussion with regards to trade but we have also other parts of the world we have brexit in europe we have the eu carbon tax and many other elements so what i want to say is that i think going forward we will see less of a global trade and we will see much more of regional trades regional supply chains uh, regionally focused I think that's also one of the big trends, I would say. And then there's a third force, which is uh, digital transformation. Uh, well, you know, uh, although the iPhone is 14 years old, feels long, and at the same time, it's the old age of my young daughter, so it doesn't <laughs> feel very long. Um, but if you take the iPhone as an example or many other applications, I think we're still at the beginning of the digital implications of what we've seen. I think... Uh, COVID has accelerated digitalization. Yeah. Some people say by two years, some say by five years, some say by 10 years. I won't debate on this. It has definitely accelerated. And what I find interesting, it has brought digitalization into areas where so far this was just unheard of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so I just had a discussion with a company that is producing furniture, yeah, mid-sized German furniture manufacturer. They were still sell, sending paper catalogs to their clients and people could choose their sofa or whatever cupboard uh, to be built. Now they went completely digital. So for me, this is one of the examples where you would never have expected such a strong uptake on digitalization. So as in a nutshell, consumer trends will go much more into this whole area of environmental sound production. We will have much more regional demand and regional delivery models. And I think we will continue to see an acceleration on digital. That's what would be my three long-term trends. So I tried to summarize this big question in a few minutes, but uh, uh, didn't take a full day. No, you did a good job. Thank you. <laughs> um, and just finally, kind of to round our episode off, um, the kind of obviously there's so many topics we could have covered today, and we've touched on things kind of with a very light brush, like we've said. Um, are there any kind of final tips you would offer to help organizations in the coming weeks, months, and potentially years? And I know it's another big question, so. Yeah, but I think I think there is one point which we haven't touched so much on and which I think for me is the missing puzzle piece of the discussion so far, which is actually people. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, I think that uh, all what we have discussed so far can only be achieved uh, and this seems obvious, but still can only be achieved if I have a strong, uh, motivated workforce. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, that's why I personally think that it's very, very important. And we, at BCG, we have a concept of thing, head, heart, and hands. Yeah, so meaning 
we, what we see is that successful companies are addressing the head, the heart, and the hands of their people when it comes to transformation. Yeah, head meaning showing them what are the priorities of transformation, which initiative to pursue, which one not to initiate uh, to pursue. Heart is really engaging them emotionally and telling them why are we doing it? What is the purpose of this? Yeah. Whom do we want to support? What is our role in society? And hence is to give them really clear, I don't know, instruction or guidance on what to do by which step going forward. So from that perspective, I think these are the three uh, engagement levels which I would see in terms of, in terms of uh, head, heart, and hand, which really ensure that let's say transformation in this challenging environment are successful. I think that piece that you mentioned about purpose is really interesting as well and kind of how I would say over the last maybe I don't know how long but purpose seems to be really important for more and more people and I feel like it goes back to that previous point you mentioned about consumers having more kind of a social conscience when they buy things and it's also that conscious in work they want to know what their purpose is over simply just collecting a paycheck at the end of the day or the end of the month so I think that's that's a really interesting piece as well. Yes. so we're drawing to the end of the episode today so massive thank you for joining me on giant talk um I, if you'd like to learn more about the work that nicholas leads i'll drop in his profile along with a link to the beyond great book that we've mentioned in the episode in the show notes and as always we'd love to hear from our listeners so please feel free to leave us feedback on your preferred podcast platform or email us at growth at so thank you again nicholas and we'll see you next time for another episode of giant talk